Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. It's uh, great to come together after such a, a devoted time of prayer and just to be the corporate church again, to be together as a family. Um, I love it. I had a really great time. Uh, I must admit the two o'clock start on yesterday morning uh, was a challenge, uh, having gone to bed at 11. Um, it was a challenge, but it was so good just to come and dwell with other believers in the presence of God. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Um, before I kick off more thoroughly, I'd like to invite Rachel to come and read for us this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. Thank you, Craig. Lovely. So now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation. Through your prayers and help from the Spirit... In Jesus Christ, Christ, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, Then, whether I come to see you or I am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from our God, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had now here that I have. Thank you, Rachel. Um, As I said last week, it's great to hear the word spoken out. Uh, This letter would have been read out to the people in the church in Philippi, and uh, it's good for us to hear it in a similar fashion. Uh, This week, I came across a definition for life. And you might be thinking, Craig, that's incredibly exciting. Uh, Finally, now, give us the answer. Well, I can tell you, I was left sorely disappointed. The definition read, life is an entity 
with the ability to adapt to its environment. How disappointing. The mistake I made was finding a definition of life from a man called J.V. Chamery, who's an evolutionary biologist. The answer to the question of what is, this answer to the question of what is life really just doesn't satisfy. It doesn't answer the question in a way that quenches our inbuilt need to understand our existence. I should have been looking elsewhere. Physical science will only give us answers to physical questions. Uh, Let's try the dictionary. Collins' English dictionary first reference to life is that life is the quality which people, animals and plants have when they're not dead. (laughs) (laughs) And which objects and substances do not have. Life then is purely the state of organic things before they die. How wonderful. Maybe the arts have a better answer. George Harrison, a guitarist from the Beatles, who many of us will know that as a band, they, they sought out meaning in India. Um, after the band split up in 1970, he wrote this song, um, What is Life? In which he's asking, what is life without you? Either referring to, probably referring to someone, or maybe, maybe a deity, we don't know. Um, you know, I don't think any of us are truly satisfied with bio- biological or uh, dictionary definitions of life. And if anything, George Harrison's song um, is probably the closest, closest one. Uh, it reflects, probably reflects a position that many of us hold. That actually life is about having, a people, having people around us who we love. But still, for me, having people around me isn't enough of an answer to the question of what is life. Finally, what about the philosophers? Right? Those people whose job is to consider meaning itself. On Philosophy Now's website, one answer to the question of what, what is life was life is the embodiment of selfishness. Life is selfish because it is for itself in two ways. It's for its own survival and it's for its own reproduction. Another sad answer. We have a need in us to find out the answers to the questions of what is life? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And some of you might be sitting there thinking, Craig, you should really do an alpha course so you can answer this question. Um, I think it's good for us to pray. So let's just take a moment. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you'd open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this morning to hear from you. Would you prepare us now to to hear the things in what I'm saying that you want us to hear. That you would speak to us individually, Lord God. Um, that it wouldn't be through clever words or anything like that, not that I'm claimed to have any, but it would be through your spirit working in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, in our reading this morning, we've heard Paul tell the Philippians that the suffering he's going through, being imprisoned in Rome, is serving to advance the gospel. The people holding him captive are hearing and observing the power of the gospel uh, through Paul as he's suffering. Christians around Paul, maybe even some of the jailers, are being more and more bold to proclaim the gospel to those around them, directly because Paul is suffering, directly because he's in chains. They've seen that Paul is willing to suffer for the gospel, and they see that this is how much this truth matters to Paul. So they too are willing to be even more ridiculous in proclamation of their king. It reminds me of uh, King David, um, the giant slayer, the king of all Israel. 
uh, and as he says to his daughter, I will become even more undignified than this. And I think the truth of the power of the gospel of Jesus can affect us in a similar way to David. David saw the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God, in its rightful place in Jerusalem. And it caused him to dance nearly naked, just wearing a, a linen ephod, it says, um, completely undignified, completely contemptible by those who don't understand the gravity of what he is celebrating, the gravity of what's happened, God's presence among the people. And in the same way, I think those believers around Paul got a greater idea of the gravity of the gospel and responded by, even, by being even bolder, being even more undignified in their proclamation of the gospel because they saw what Paul was willing to go through. You know, Paul was, a, as a man, he was someone who knew all manner of persecution uh, and suffering because of his unswaying devotion to the freedom and the truth of the gospel. And even as some are preaching Jesus because they're envious of Paul and others are preaching because they actually love Jesus, Paul rejoices in either case. Because in either way, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ is being proclaimed. And even in what we might consider a dark time, you know, when he's in chains for the gospel, he's imprisoned for the gospel, he remains faithful and full of joy, even in that suffering. I'm sad to break it to you all, if you haven't worked out already, but the reality is that suffering and the Christian life go hand in hand. Let us rejoice, though, that we have a God who uses all things for his good, even our suffering, even in our trials, even in our hard times. He's going to use those things for good. We've heard it already this morning, but Philippians 1, 18 to 23 contains one of the most well-known passages of Scripture known to the church today. Um, it was one of the first passages of Scripture that I actually learned, and it was because I, I went to Colliers in Horsham, went to sick form, and uh, I had a mate who had a T-shirt, and on it, he says, you know, um, I, think it, I think it had live equals Christ, die equals gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul's a man who realizes the truth that there is no greater call, no higher mission than the mission of honoring Jesus in all things. He's made the realization that whether he lives or dies as a result of his suffering, that Jesus will be honored through it. We question what is life? And Paul points to the answer. Paul knows that his life won't end, but it will change as he walks through the door of death and arrives through the door of wonder into the presence of the king. Paul recognizes a deep truth that for the believer, life this side of a realized eternal life is one that can be and should be fruitful. Jesus has done so much for us, not just to give us eternal life, but to effect change in our lives now. Instead of eternity for us starting at the point of death, instead I'd say that eternity starts the moment of salvation. So our eternity have already, has already begun. Those who follow Jesus, your eternity has begun. And because of that, we're free to live our lives to reflect that fact. We're children of the eternal God now. If we follow him and proclaim him our saviour, then we can live lives that reflect that to the world around us. Jesus has set us free from the power of sin in our lives. And because of that, we can live lives that are free, that point to Jesus, lives that proclaim the goodness of Jesus, as well as the power of Jesus to save. 
we can be confident that even in the face of death, that we go on to a, to a better thing, a better place. We, we get to be with Jesus. So we can rejoice. That's a good thing. None of us know what, when that time's going to be. We don't know when we're going to die. But when we do, if we believe us here today, we know we're going to something better. We're going into the presence of the king. Yeah? That's exciting. We fear death. Thanks, Nick. We fear death. We're scared of it. We worry about, oh, I don't know. But as Christians, we have an assurance in Christ that when we die, we will walk into the presence of the king. That is a wondrous truth. And that's why Paul rejoices. We can join him in that. Now, what gives Paul the confidence to proclaim that to live is Christ and to die is gain? I tell you, it's the fact that his own life revolves around the person of Jesus. In this life, Paul promised to be faithful to Jesus because Jesus offered him eternal life. When looking at the suffering that he's going through, Paul realises that even in those dark times that Jesus has still offered him so much. He's in chains for the gospel. He's imprisoned. His liberty has been taken away. But Jesus has offered him so much more. Paul won't let the situation steal his joy of knowing what Jesus has offered him. You too, we all here, are free to accept all that Jesus offers you. You too are free to know, even in the direst of circumstances, free to know joy, joy that comes through knowing Jesus. In Romans 8, Paul tells us how he is content in his suffering. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul finds his joy in life completely in Jesus, even as he suffers, even as he's jailed, even as he's taken beatings and whippings and all sorts of horrendous things, he still finds his joy in Jesus. Last week I asked a question if, we, if there's those among us who struggle with why we continue to suffer as believers, why still, things are still hard. And I think the reality is that it actually makes sense for us to struggle with that. It really does make sense for us to struggle with it. If we've, if we've chosen to follow Jesus, we have new lives, and yet there's still stuff going wrong. We still get ill to differing degrees. Our friends still get ill, and people we love still die. You know, there's, there's stories in books about the martyrs that show people in far dire circumstances than most of us will ever encounter where they've worshipped, praised, and prayed to God, even in the most shameful of moments. Why are they able to persevere? It's because they have their joy in Jesus, and they know that one day, maybe even that same day, they will behold his face as they, behold, as they, as they emerge through the door of death, which in fact is the door to Jesus' wondrous presence. For Paul and for us, departing this world and being with Jesus is the better thing. It is the more fulfilling thing. But God's got stuff he wants us to do here first. It's all his timing. And so we honour his will and we trust in him for, for his timing. Let us be a people who, like Paul, are fully aware of the goodness and the wonder that is to come. So not wanting to end on death, um, what next? What next? 
Well, we can be assured that if we're believers, when we die, we'll be with Jesus, and that'll be amazing. But what about now? What about this start of eternal life? What does it look like? Paul goes on later in the letter, in, in we have his chapter 4. Um, oh, no, sorry, that's later. Hold on a minute. <laughs> Paul says earlier in the letter that we are to live lives that are worthy of citizens of the gospel. How we live now matters. You can stand on a street corner and you can preach the good news all you like. But if your life doesn't reflect the good news, then who on earth is going to listen to you? I know that I can stand up here and I can preach the good news of Jesus and I can keep doing it until I'm blue in the face. But if, if I'm not living in the goodness of it, if I'm not enjoying the love of Christ in my life, Who's going to listen to me? If I stay as I was before I came to faith in Jesus, what evidence is there that people can look at and think, I want what he's got. I want what she's got. Transformed lives transform lives. It's the transformed life that is the best witness to those around us so much of the time. When someone looks at you, someone who's known you for years and years, and they see something different, they see your life transformed. It speaks volumes. It's not that you've turned your life around. It's not, oh, you know, when they come to you, oh, well, you've done really well turning your life around. I know. No, you haven't turned your life around. An encounter with Jesus has. You met Jesus. He turned your life around. He made the change. It's because he's done that in your life that then that's how you live in that transformed life. You know, Jesus has given us life, new life not polishing up the old life. It's, it's not you doing something to make it all look better again. It's the encounter with the risen Christ. It's an encounter with Jesus. It gives you new life. You know, we have a, a great opportunity of a fresh start in knowing freedom from the power of sin and the empowering assurance of eternal life. You know, Paul longs for the Philippians, the people at the church in Philippi, to be pure, to be a people not tainted by the practices of those around them. And Philippi was like, effectively like a mini Rome, all right? And I'm sure many of us can think back to our history classes about Rome and, you know, the depravity and stuff that was all going on there. You know, this, these people, this church, had all these options to carry on as they always had done. They carry on as how they'd lived whilst they were citizens of Rome before they came to know Jesus. But the reality is they now have a new identity. They have a new citizenship based in heaven. So to help them to know what to focus on, Paul says um, that he was praying for their love to increase. In verses 10 and 11, so that they may approve the things which are superior, may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul desires that the church at Philippi would know the things that are fit for believers to do, ways that are suitable for believers to act, all because of their assurance of the gospel. Paul goes on later uh, in the letter in Philippians 4, uh, that the Philippian believers should dwell on truth, things that are honourable, things that are just, things that are lovely, commendable things, things that are excellent and praiseworthy. 
we too are free to do the very same. We too can focus on the excellent things, the wondrous things, the joyous things, the lovely things. And so often, so often even in our new lives, even those of us who have known new life for the bulk of our lives, this month, I think it may have been yesterday, I can't remember the exact date, um, but this month is 16 years since I came to faith. I'm now 32, so I've now just, just gone over that line. Of, I've actually been a Christian my, most of my life now, even if it is just by a day. Um, but even those of us who, who are in that category, who have known Jesus most of our lives, we can tend to, towards the things that Paul warns believers against in his other letters. In the second letter that we have of his letters to the church at Corinth, Paul tells the believers that he fears for his next visit to the church. He fears for his next visit to the church because he may well find quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder in the church there. He's worried about that. He's worried about coming to a church and finding all of those things. Let us be a church that encourages one another in the things that Paul tells believers to focus on and to long for in one another. Let us long for these things in ourselves and one another in this church and then lovingly correct one another when we're getting distracted onto the things that Paul warns against. Let me tell you, it is not judgmental to love someone enough to point them back to the way that Jesus calls us to live. The way that Jesus frees us and empowers us to live. Let us be a people who excel in love, mercy and grace, particularly to one another. The Christian life is the life of being a little Christ. It's what Christian means. It's the life of being like Jesus, being Jesus-like to those around you. How, I have to ask myself, how well do people see Jesus in me, in my life? To be honest, they could certainly see him a lot better. How about you? So I ask, will you copy me in trying to stand firm? In my, my aim is to try and stand firm in Christ, stand firm in the gospel, when under challenge for what we're doing. You know, when, when you face challenge, will you try and stand firm? You know, standing firm against uh, challenges, it equips us to stand firm against the heavier persecution. We hear of those martyrs who died for their faith, and through the whole time they remained faithful to Jesus. They knew their joy was in Christ. Why though stand firm? Why bother? Why not just give in? Why not just compromise and just choose to live like everyone else around us? Paul gives us the answer to this question at the end of, our, end of our reading from today. He seeks that believers are found to be standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. When we stand firm for the gospel, it's a sign of the power of the gospel. We don't stand firm because we think we're better than everyone else, 
and that we stand over them in judgment. You know, you're not high and mighty. You're not placing yourself on a pedestal and going, you there. There is sin in your life. I'm not pointing at Neil. Um, <laughs> we don't lift ourselves up to push people down, right? We stand firm in the gospel because it's the life that Jesus called us to live. That we might be witnesses for him and his gospel. A word came on um, uh, Friday night. Um, and uh, we were chatting about being secure. Being um, secure and confident in the gospel. That's my prayer for everyone here, for all the Christians in this village. It's for us to be confident in the gospel. We get our confidence from Jesus, our confidence from the good news of Christ. You know, what happens when we stand firm? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It causes people to question their own thoughts and beliefs. It points out the better way. It points out Jesus' way, the kingdom way. And it offers opportunity for conviction and challenge by the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to convict. It's not our job to sentence. That's judgment, right? But it is our job to point out the better way, to point to Jesus. Does anyone remember a certain song from the 80s, um, Star Trekking Across the Universe? <laughs> right, hold on a minute. Rue, can you put it up there for me? I've been keeping this hidden for the whole service. Where's it gone? There it is. And I'm surprised Sue hasn't told me off yet because I stole it from the office. Or Vish could have told me off. Right, who remembers this logo? Yeah? This is the old BSC logo from way back when. As Steve has, Steve Petch, who found, was part of the team that planted this church, told me that he created on clip art. Um, who remembers clip art? That's a long time ago. And on the front of it, we've got a picture of, of, of uh, Spock. It says, it's church, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> Did it really? <laughs> Richard Brooks, who's now 20-something. Um, so, just made me chuckle when I saw it. In the original, though, uh, in the original song, um, it says, it's life, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. It's church gym, but not as we know it. It's from a deep in the annals of BFC history, along with the logo. But for the believer, that original line is such a thing for us to remember. This life, this new believer life, is life, but not as we've ever known it before. You know, Jesus offers everyone, all people, the opportunity to turn to him and to follow him. He offers everyone the chance of new life. New life different from the old. Not through any work, not for anything of, of, of trying to scrub something to make it look better. New life different from the old because of a person. It's because of Jesus. If we think back to the 
definitions of life at the start of my sermon, how none of them really satisfied. To my mind, George Harrison was the one who got the, the definition right, though his original subject might have been incorrect. We, know, we never know with a songwriter who they're writing to. I couldn't find anything online saying, I wrote this because. You see, the answer to the question of what is life is in fact another question. What's life without you? He was asking the better question, even though he may never have realized it. The answer for those seeking to know what life is, is the better question. What is life without you? What is life without Jesus? What's life without him? You know, Jesus offers you life. In fact, he came that you might have life and have it in all abundance, or have it to the full. We will never be satisfied with the things of this world. When we keep seeking meaning in them, we'll always find ourselves wanting more. Jesus offers us life that is centred on him, a life that truly does satisfy, a life that has real meaning. As we live in the good times and suffer in the hard times, we can live in the assurance that Jesus has done so much for us, that even the present sufferings can be counted naught in comparison to the eternal life that we have in him. Where do we find joy in the good times and bad? In the life that Jesus offers you, in life centered on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. Thank you for the way you used Paul in so much of growing the church and for the the letters that he wrote as well that that we hold as your words. And Lord God, I pray that in the things that you've opened up to us this morning, the things that you've spoken to us individually about, that as you work through us now, as we respond in in worship, um, that you would be speaking to us, opening our eyes to what it is you want us to do. It's good for us to respond. Um, And I pray, Lord God, that there would be conviction even now, that by your Spirit you'd be speaking to us as 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 a loving Father and just pointing out the things that you want us to bring to you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would lead us towards repentance, towards turning away from the old things and stepping ahead, walking to you, walking with you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray that there would be a a work of your spirit in this room, even now, even as we worship, that, Lord God, we'd be turning back to you Yeah, do that now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.